Here's your opportunity to listen and learn from the most successful people driving growth and success in Palm Beach County and beyond. Welcome to the Business in Paradise Palm Beach podcast with Carrie Stamp, founder of Carrie Stamp and Company, Principled Wealth Advisors. Carrie and his guests share stories and insights from Palm Beach County's most successful executives, entrepreneurs, and community leaders. Learn how they made it to where they are today, what principles guide them, how they mentor others to achieve success, and more. Hi, my name is Carrie Stamp, and you're listening to the Business in Paradise podcast. I have a fantastic guest today. Uh, I absolutely enjoy going to his place of business. Our guest is Dean Lavalle, who is the owner and founder of PA Barbecue. They run eight barbecue restaurants in Palm Beach County, Florida. And uh, Dean's been doing this a fairly long time and has absolutely perfected what I would call the art of barbecue. So, Dean, welcome to the podcast today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Dean, what what brought you to Palm Beach County? We we talk about doing business in paradise, and I chose to move here. Were, were you also somebody that chose to come down here? No, I'm one of the exceptionally lucky ones. I was born in Good Sam Hospital. Uh, I'm a native Floridian, uh, proud, very proud of that. And so, no, I was a fortunate one. I, I got here by God's grace. And so uh, coming out of Good Sam Hospital, you grew up in the West Palm Beach area? Yeah, west of town by the Turnpike. Uh, went through the Palm Beach County school system, tended uh, what we used to call PBJC, uh, Peanut Butter and Jelly College. But yeah, started, started here, got my education here, and started a business here. All right. And right out, did you work for another restaurant before you started your own? Yeah, I worked for several. And, and, and I feel very fortunate to look back and have, have had very, very good mentors uh, in, in the restaurant business by happenstance and, and learned tremendous amounts. Uh, I worked in, in people have been here long enough. Remember on Okeechobee Boulevard, there was a steakhouse called The Gathering. In fact, the funny thing, my restaurant career started on Okeechobee Boulevard. When I was old enough to work at 14, I was allowed to work at Lums as a dishwasher. And then at 16, I was allowed to work at Burger King as a uh, Big Mac cooker. And then at 17, I was allowed to work at the steakhouse next door. And then at that steakhouse, uh, after a couple of years, they promoted me to management. And I've been in the restaurant business ever since as management. How did you decide upon a barbecue that that's what you were going to make your name in? So that is the weirdest story. I, 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 I give a speech to uh, outgoing college uh, seniors about failing forward, about uh, sometimes the, the biggest decisions in your life you don't make for yourself, they're made for you. And I had been in fine dining most of my early career and uh, worked for Chuck Muir Corporation in Palm Beach and, and actually was about to take a job for Chuck Muir in, uh, in Michigan in one of their flagship restaurants and decided that I really wanted to take a shot at owning my own restaurant. So as many kids do with a hope and a dream, I, I talked to every one of the 10,000 people that met me working for other people who said that they would back me when I was ready to open my own establishment. and. 9,998 people said no. Uh, and the one guy, the first guy that said yes was a, a sophisticated Palm Beacher with a lot of money who believed in me. And he said, and I think this is very uh, wise now when I look back, that he would, he would be part of it, but he wouldn't fund all of it. And I had to go out and get the other half of the money. And so I had, uh, I had done the early consulting work for the 2Js chain, um, 
both the uh, Jays were friends of mine and, and we knew each other from the business and they were struggling in their first couple of years in Palm Beach. And after I left two Jays, I helped my father open a deli and I was literally delivering sandwiches while I was trying to raise money. And I met a, a, a gentleman in a real estate office and he said, I hear you're trying to open money for a restaurant. And I said, right now I'm delivering sandwiches. That'll be $10 because I was angry and hot. And he said, no, sit down, tell me your story. And I proceeded to tell him the same story I had told billionaires. And surprisingly, within 10 minutes, he stuck out his hand and said, we've got a deal. And I was aghast because I believed in myself. I believed in the concept. And I was also really uh, stunned that I couldn't raise the small amount of money I needed. Well, uh, here's where the failures start coming in. So, uh, and if you remember a, a dear friend of my father and a, another West Palm Beach legend, Harry Hamilton, owned the property that I was going to take over it was in the Northbridge Center. And I went trotting up to Harry with my money and saying, I'm ready for the lease. And Harry said, I have the worst news possible, Dean. Payne Weber's foreclosing on my building. And I said, well, you can't do that to me, Harry. I spent two years trying to get this put together. And the um, Harry said, Dean, this is legal. They're not going to sign with you. You can call them. I called them. They confirmed. They said it would it would give him grounds against us in court on the proceeding. So we're going to pay for the space in your SOL. So I proceeded to give back the first investor his money, and I went to give back the second investor his money. He said, hey, I've got an idea for you. I've got a failing barbecue you could buy. And I said, that is the worst sales pitch ever. I said, what are you talking about? And so we, he had opened a barbecue for his his uh, middle son, and it really was an abject failure and was losing a lot of money. And he, uh, I said, I just can't. I've been in fine dining my whole life. I'm going to continue to be fine dining. And we hung up, and he called me the next day, and he said, listen, I've got a real problem. And I said, what's your problem? And he goes, well, my first son I opened a business for is very successful. My second wife's son is the son that has the barbecue. And she says, if I close it or take it away from him, he'll, she'll divorce me. And I said, I really like you and appreciated everything that we've done together. But the answer is no, I, I can't base my life on your marriage. And the next day he called me back and said, Dean, remember when you needed a favor? And I said, well, if you said that three days ago, we'd already be three days started. So here's the miracle of mistakes. I thought I was too good for the barbecue business and thought like lawyers do or financial accountants that the bigger the client, the better position in the industry. That's not necessarily true. And I'd spent quite a while in fine dining in Palm Beach, but realized there's a little bit of servitude in working for restaurants that are very expensive. There's an expectation that the customer could do and say anything they want, uh, which is a little bit taxing emotionally on the employees. And so my first day at, at the barbecue, I went up and down the street and asked everybody how they liked it. And everybody said, it's so bad, we'll never go back. And so I walked out to the street and thinking what I've got myself into. And I had a can of green paint and I rolled over the sign. And we were on Park Avenue, having grown up here, I know it's the only Park Avenue in Palm Beach County. I go, well, at least they can find me. So I rewrote all the recipes, threw away all the food and created a barbecue and envisioned of what I thought good barbecue would be as if my mother was coming to dinner, even though I wasn't in that business. And I opened the doors and we had one table of four walk in. Two, uh, two parents and two kids, and they bought four chicken dinners for $5 each. My sales in that first Saturday were $22. <laughs> Dean, and paint, I am, paint, paint us a, a little bit of a picture here. How old are you? Do you have a family at this point? I'm, and, I'm 28 and, years old. I'm single. I, I, I had done quite a, well for myself working for other companies, 
I had acquired a little bit of a, a real estate empire, flipping houses, and I had quite a few rental properties. Um, but my passion really was for the restaurant business, and 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 I wanted mine. I I had helped, like I had helped the original Two J's chain; they did very well. I I worked for some other people that made a lot of money, and I thought that it, working for myself, I could uh, do that at least or do better. But my idea was to do a slightly different version of barbecue because it seemed to be barbecues actually at the time seemed to be lined up along cultural lines. You had black barbecues in very rough neighborhoods. You had Tony Roma's, which I called, uh, it was a, a barbecue as a scotch lead. And then you had Luther's, Sonny's, Fat Boy's, which are country western barbecues. And none of those three clientels felt comfortable in the same room. So I was an opportunity if, if we could rebrand this barbecue and give barbecue customers the same service points you get in Palm Beach, because service is free, that we could create a brand on our own. So back to November, Saturday, late November 1988, this 44 walks out, and I'm opening the door thinking, I don't think this is going to work. And the gentleman turned to me and said, I want to thank you for a delicious dinner. That never happened to me, Carrie, Palm Beach, not one time. <laughs> People paid for the meal and said, you know, the pasta is not as good as Milan. And all you're trying to do for a high B people is say, I'm doing as hard as I can. I hope you enjoy it. And we'll take constructive criticism. But all of a sudden I said, you know, like Ray Kroc, maybe you could please the masses. Uh, and it, it would be more rewarding than, than being the darling restaurant of the week or month in Palm Beach. And so we opened one and uh, we struggled. We, we got the food turned around. We got some people coming in. And three years later, uh, uh, Val Perez, uh, who was the food writer for the Post, uh, was not coming to see me, but he went to the computer shop five doors down. Uh, back in the day, you could get your computer fixed at any little computer repair shop, and uh, asked Rory Sanchez where where he could eat for lunch. And Rory says, "I don't know that much, but I eat at this barbecue five days a week." <laughs> so the food critic came in and he said, "Wow, that's an amazing food. You have amazing loyal customers." but you don't advertise and you're nobody. I can't write anything about you, but I can include you in an article about best restaurants on 10 or $10 in Palm Beach County. That ran on Sunday. And on Monday we had lines around the building wow. for a year. Uh, and, and so it was three years of struggle and one day of super success. So you're, you're in the barbecue restaurant. You've, you're 28 years old. You've just started. Did you still, did the partner stay with you? The gentleman that uh, uh, you took this over from his son? Yeah, we actually did. We stayed together, uh, and, and he taught me a lot. I learned a lot about big business from big chains and big process. But he taught me, I remember one day, we used to eat, eat breakfast every day at 6 o'clock before I went in. And so one day we were coming out of our breakfast joint, and he talked to me about, hey, let's go to some auctions to buy some food and equipment. And I go, do we really have time for that? And he took a nickel out of his pocket. He threw it on the table. He goes, pick it up. And I go, okay. So I pick up the nickel. He goes, when you're an owner, if you pick up a nickel, you get the nickel. So I started going to auctions. We were, And at the time, we were chasing other people's failures. And the second unit was uh, a failure in, in Lake Worth of a Denny's operation. The Denny's didn't know why it failed. It failed really because the road had been closed. And then we took a failed Hardee's into Cuesta and then a failed Dino's Pizza in Wellington. But we stayed together for about 12 years. And really, at that point, the impetus was he had been a, a trainer of thoroughbreds and he wanted to go back to, to training horses. And I said, well, if you're not going to be in the market, we're not really active partners. And then we can either split it up three and three. You could I buy me out. I can buy you out. And uh, 
and, and even at the time there were some companies that were trying to acquire us and I said so the, the company's worth something and and so I took the gamble paid him off and uh, took on the debt on my own Wow. So uh, go back to the first one. When is Park Avenue? Is that Lake Park, Park Avenue? Park Avenue Lake Park. Yes, sir. And is that store still there? Uh, actually not. And uh, I moved out of that store in 99 and then rebuilt it with the hopes of doing something we see today, like uh, breweries. And we were looking at putting a commissary in. But after building it, working with Lake Park, there were fundamental easement problems for moving big and trucks, big and through there. So we decided to, to take a flyer and go ahead and sell that property to somebody else who had visions more consistent with the town's build out plans. Although we love Lake Park and I wouldn't be here without Lake Park's management and Lake Park's uh, customer base because they were, and they're still loyal to us. And in some ways, when, when we first started doing the restaurants, I I didn't like big box brand restaurants that all felt the same. So when we opened Lake Park, we did historical photos of Lake Park. And I found out Lake Park had a really curious history. And that Lake Park originally was Kelsey City, and it encompassed all that is North Palm Beach. And actually, the North Palm Beach Country Club was the Kelsey City Golf Club. Um, so we literally moved less than a mile north inside of what would have been historical Kelsey City on the US-1. And the good news is, our Lake Park customers uh, actually like that store better. It has better bathrooms. It has better seating. It has everything's better for them. So aside from uh, you mentioned the service, that service is free, and that's something that uh, at, at any time. Well, let me say the service is a decision. Like right. in the house and restaurants, everything is manufacturing, and you have a six ounce chicken breast and two and a half ounces of sauce and one piece of lettuce and two tomatoes. And then there's a cost associated with that. Front of the house, we know what we're supposed to do. Will you go say hello to the customer now? Or are you going to stand in the side stand for a while? And it's really a willingness to reward that customer with the choice of visiting us. Uh, and and, and the, the surprising thing is, I believe our industry has been revolutionized from the bottom up by a company called Chick-fil-A, where they've taken first-time employees and taught them the importance of being congenial and and respectful and hardworking and how that affects the customer's view of the operation. So all of us are, are really focused on, nobody says they had bad service, but do you train to that and do you manage that? So at our firm, we have what are called our seven primary principles, which essentially outlines what our clients can expect from us and uh, how we're going to behave towards each other and, and towards our clientele. When you're doing your training, is there a mantra? Is there a, a methodology that you use to put the new employees through so that they kind of understand the Park Avenue way or whatever you call it? Well, not only have we had that, but we, we scrapped it and changed it a few years back. And I feel like what we do today is so much better. Everything changes. Food service changes. There's new players in the industry. There's new styles of food service. But one of the things we've been, and I'm sure your business and everybody's business contends with, is the idea of the workforce has changed. And the, and the style of workforce and, and the uh, duration of employees and the willingness to buy into our corporate dogmas. And so I remember going to work for, for Muir and going through their training program and literally their training manual, because they've been 30 years open, was a thousand pages. And so for a 26-year-old that's just trying to make money, a thousand page manual seems like horseshit. And today, I don't think you could sell that. So when we started 
really trying to analyze what we're doing and how to get that behavior out of our employees, we did what you did and turned our thousand page training manual into a series of three four letter acronyms. Uh, because the reality of your work inside the business is an ongoing learning process and even that varies. So our first acronym is PACE, P-A-C-E. And uh, what we describe as everybody has to be professional and professional we give speeches on each letter. And then we said everything we serve obviously should be award-winning whether it's a French fry or coleslaw or rack of ribs that you have to have a consistent application of your energy level and your enjoyment with new customers, old customers, first-time customers, last customers. It has to be a consistent experience, nothing worse than liking it and not liking it the next day. And at Park Avenue Barbecue, the word paste also describes an energy level. And I want my people moving at a seven and a half on a one to 10, visibly animated. I want the customer to see them working. So inside paste, we can talk about when, when we do this, when, when we get a customer complaint, we'll, we'll ask the employee, which letter did we fail? Did we fail the consistency? Did we fail the energy level? Did we have sloppy uniforms on? We failed professionalism. And so you can, you can reverse engineer the complaints that way. And then the other four acronyms really are the strength of companies. Not when you do things well is you make a mistake. So when we make a mistake, our acronym is love. And love is, the customer uh, has a complaint. What I know is customers are paying for the right to enjoy themselves, not paying to complain. And they have to rest to a threshold of really animated and upset before they go, I can't take this anymore, turn the music down. So in our uh, L-O-V-E, the first thing the customer is really paying for right now, eye to eye, listen to me. I don't care whether you do this or not, but I really am paying for the right for you to listen to what I'm saying as a customer. And the listening, a lot of times people jump over the next step. If you said, I burned your French fries, they might go, let me bring you more French fries. You go, you know what? I don't think you do French fries well. Bring me the coleslaw. So the second step in our mistake is an offer. We offer a solution. Here's what we can do. If that's not good enough, they're going to get the manager. He has a different set of offers. Third is verify. If we failed, we fix it and we don't, conclude that we got it right, we've lost you as a customer forever. And then the last one is the most subtle thing. Uh, and I give a speech to people who says, I didn't come here for free pie. Once you've made a mistake and fixed the mistake, don't bring up the mistake again. Help them forget that you made a mistake. The free pie just brings back, boy, they don't know how to cook steaks right here. Um, so we have pace and love. And then we have one third acronym that's a team spirit acronym called SPOT. We are, we are, as an organization, a special pork operating team, <laughs> like SWAT, but a SPOT team. Um, so SPOT is who we are, PACE is what we do, and love is what we do when you didn't get it right. Wow. And that's our manual. All right, Dean, that's uh, fantastic. And that uh, is very succinct. Your employees can understand it. You uh, don't have to think very hard about it. You just got to do it the right way. And I, I have read a a uh, couple of books in the one that I'm trying to think of, the name escapes me right now, but it's essentially about the service level of the Ritz-Carlton and sure. how the Ritz-Carlton goes through their principles and their... Uh, ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen. Exactly. And and not only that, but they say things uh, like Chick-fil-A does, like instead of uh, uh, when you say thank you to somebody Chick-fil-A, they never say uh, no problem. 
they always say it's my, my pleasure. pleasure. My pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was so funny uh, to that end. I was in one of the Darden properties, and the waitress comes over and she serves my iced tea. I said thank you. She goes, my pleasure. I go, did you come up with that? And she goes, no, we have a new dialogue of corporate speak. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I, I'm a little bit, now that Chick-fil-A has done it, they can own my pleasure. What I want my employees to do is be real with the customer and, and be customer centric. Ha- having a robotic response is good, but I think it's much better if we can have people working for us. Uh, understood. So Dean, you mentioned uh, giving a speech to, did was it graduating college students about how to fail forward? Yeah, I, I make myself available, especially to the magnet programs that are either business related or culinary related uh, anytime they want me. And as you think of some of the challenges that you've had in business, uh, if you could go back and talk to uh, Dean of 20 or 25 years ago and say, geez, there's one thing I wish I would have done differently or one thing that I uh, wish I could have improved on or changed or grown faster or whatever, what would you? What advice would you give yourself if you could be looking at yourself 25 years ago? So I'm going to take that in pieces. So the the thing, the change I'd like to see is I'd like, I believe our industry is in some cases a job of last resort. In some ways, it was that for me, that I had to support myself. I was going to college and somebody offered me a management job and there I am in the restaurant business. What I've learned going forward is, boy, I was lucky. This job allows me to play chef and architect and designer and, and allows me to create and it allows me a lot of personal freedom. But on the front end, I think that there was not a sense of you can, if you do your homework, you can go in the bar, into the restaurant business and succeed with certainty. If you go uh, through law school, you'll make a living. You're, there's going to be a place for you if you in, in business school, likewise. And so I think there, the restaurant business uh, can be a business that would be much more uh, satisfying for a lot of people and much more successful for a lot of people. So that's one. Um, and I, and I, and so but the fail forward is not really a joke in that if you succeed and, and we're both uh, veterans of the Vistage tech world, uh, I've heard enough speeches that some of the biggest impediments to your second success are your first success. And so success in my mind can be more dangerous than failure because you don't do an autopsy on the success. And largely we miss and we miss attribute uh, the reason for the success, it might have been you had a fabulous looking tall blonde bartender at unit one, and you didn't understand that it wasn't the location and it wasn't the meatballs. Whereas if you fail, you'll you'll roast over that failure and you'll turn that thing on the spit and you'll learn something. And when you go dust off and try again, you'll be better. Um, so I, I say to everybody, go try, go, go get a mentor in the business you want to be in. Go work for Bill Belichick. Go work for Dean LaValle. Go work for uh, Okeechobee Steakhouse. Go work for the Breakers and maybe all of them because each of them will teach you something. And then go try. And, and, and God in the world's not going to protect you. But if you try and fail and get up again, you'll get stronger and you'll make it. And Dean, you mentioned the word success. And to many of us, it has vastly different meanings. And we can define it in different ways for different parts of our life. So in general, as far as your business is concerned, uh, or even in your personal world, how would you define success? So I would say the number one for me is I'm in control of my calendar. I'm in control of my time. And uh, I I think it's really important not to, uh, and I, I try to caution my kids, not to create a enterprise where you're tied to the wheel. 
uh, and or that the, the operation has no opportunity for earning when you're not working. Because that's, to me, that's servitude. From, a, from an earning standpoint, I think that's more connected to ego than anything else. I, you know, sometimes question why people who have billions continue to really risk and, and claw because they have to. It's in them to do that, to climb that next mountain. Uh, so I think all businesses, especially businesses where there's a personal love there, will be, well, I say this, you know, it sounds so hollow, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. It's true, but it's true in a different way. You will outwork your competitors because it's easier for you than them. It's not that you'll never work. It's not you won't have challenging days. Not that you won't have competitors. But if you truly love what you do, it's a duck in water, not duck in the Sahara. And so finding, and no matter what you love, if you love skateboards, you could manufacture wheels or bearings. So there's something that you could do to be associated with the industry you love, no matter what that thing is. Would you say that there was a particular moment when you thought to yourself, man, I've made it. This is, this is the big time uh, I'm, I'm here. Or has that been an evolving phase as uh, your businesses continue to grow? Yeah, we've had a, a number of uh, really exciting successes over the years. You know, when you're the little guy, this is, this is for you restaurateurs out there. You will get lonely customers that know you're slow and they will give you lots of unwarranted advice. And the unwarranted advice early is you'll never be better than that guy. You'll never be bigger than this guy. You'll never win a competition again. So as you, you go up that chain of never will happen, uh, all of those are satisfying. But I remember uh, I married one of the waitresses that in the restaurant that I took over. Uh, and we've been married now uh, 26 years, but we've been dating for 31 of the 32 years I've had Park Avenue. And I remember we finally, uh, we... Uh, tied the knot about eight years later and we took I didn't really have much time for vacations early on and and she had to suffer through that a lot of work days not a lot of days off but we finally got married and took a, an enormous honeymoon and it was 21 days off from here to uh, New Zealand and two things happened I forgot what I really did for a living but I made more money on that trip than I spent and I go really I've created an engine that makes more money for me, even when I'm not working, than I want to spend. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't want to go back to work and find the next thing I could do. But it was an exciting lesson for me that you know, there's, a, there's some phrases we use in Vistage about momentum and about creating this flywheel momentum of energy that allows you then to, to reach the next level. But that flywheel is real. And even where we're, we are having not great weeks, but we are being rewarded with takeout business that is unprecedented. And I don't think we did that. We would do that if we started yesterday. That's 31 years of doing takeout right. And 31 years of my people getting the order right, and my, my cooks getting the food right, and our food being of value. So I'm really, really proud of my people. But I, it brings tears to my eyes when I look down the, the orders and I see names I know, and I go, really? We've earned these people's business, and it, the restaurant business is the most democratic business. Nobody forces anybody to buy from me. Uh, it's always a choice, and everyone's a choice. So, so we're really grateful that we've earned that customer respect. We've earned. Uh, my son is a, a college senior this year, and I've told him that, that maybe the, your resume and your believability is the most important thing you have as a businessman. And and so, if you walk in to a Home Depot with a Park Avenue shirt on, cashier's going to love you. 
If you walk into the DMV with a Park Avenue shirt on, DMV person's going to help you. If you get pulled over with a shirt on your way home from Park Avenue barbecue, sheriff's going to let you go. <laughs> and, and those I, I might real. need some in double X, Dean. <laughs> I got them. But those are real intangible life rewards that people actually choose us, appreciate what we do, and will support our efforts. Yeah. All right. You, you mentioned your family uh, a couple of times, your uh, wife, your uh your son, I don't know how many kids you have. Tell us a little bit how you maintain your work-life balance and how having control of your time uh, makes that family life even better. Well, so I, you know, one of the things that's a little odd is how do you go forward if you have a successful restaurant? And in what I know today after 32 years, more is not more. Better is more. And the second thing is we had, I had my first uh, child. We have three kids at home. I had my first child when I was 38. And at that point, I had a couple of restaurants in Canada. I had an affiliation in Iowa. And there was a lot of pressure on us to become a national firm. And I really resisted that because I said, there's only one chance for me to be around when my kids are growing up. So we kept the units where I could drive to them, put my fingers on them. All uh, the two older kids are both worked in the business and had a great run and understand what dad does. My wife was a veteran for the restaurant business, owned her own restaurant. So she knows what I do for a living and how hard it is. And at least one of them is talking about maybe going into the restaurant business. And so that's exciting that uh, they've lived through it and, and see some of what dad's done and mom's done. And, but really I think that owning your own business is a fabulous gift, but so is having kids. And I don't think you could put the business ahead of the kids. Now, did you mention Iowa? Yeah, I did. If you remember uh, Mondo's in North Palm Beach, uh, Jim Mondo had a bunch of uh, uh, restaurants in Iowa City, and one that he opened was a barbecue, and we came out and did some consulting for Jim, although at the end, we decided that being an owner is hard enough. Being responsible for other people's failures is too hard, so I didn't like a, the idea of franchising. I'm a proud graduate of the University of Iowa. Uh, and uh, grew up in West Des Moines, uh, went to Mondo's all the time in Iowa City. So uh, I can't imagine, it must have been approximately the time that I was there in school. But that's a long time ago, Dean. I don't know uh, how long ago you were in Iowa. Yeah, so. it's, been, it's been a long time. But it, it, but it also, again, it, it do you put this in the hands of somebody else? As A lot of people, the franchise business is a very difficult business, but what we know is the easiest part of the franchise business is selling franchises. The making the franchises work part is the hard part. And so I, and in some people that's by design, they open a chain, sell a bunch of French fries, then close it down or, or let it crater because they can extract enough money out of the franchise sale. And even some good change. I, I was good friends. A, a parallel chain for us for years was uh, RJ Gators. We started about the same time. We grew about the same rate. And then Tim jumped to franchise and then went from eight units to 35 units. And then the next year they weren't in business. And so sometimes the lure of this is just easy money kind of takes you off your game. And one of our, the, our, our my personal credos is to try to stay on our lane. We are a barbecue restaurant. We smoke, we sauce, we brine, we grill. Uh, and if it's not, meaning that it seemed like it for a while, every restaurant, regardless of type, had tacos and flatbreads on the menu. And I, so I don't, when I go to a Chinese restaurant, I don't really want a flatbread or a taco. Um, and so we've, we've tried to, to keep Park Avenue barbecue in the barbecue vein. 
And then now we're actually trying to add some of what we hear from the customer is legitimate farm to table. Can we do some stuff that's Floridian? Can we do some stuff that we have our hands in growing or that maybe maybe you've never had a Meyer lemon, doesn't know what that tastes like. And so I, I'd like to to bring some of this fresh food and culinary passion the world is experiencing down to the level of a $10 barbecue meal. Where do you get those hot pickles? How do you make those, Dean? What's the secret? Well, the interesting thing, that, that pickle was a failure uh, or was driven from failure. In 2008, uh, the world got upended and my customer got hurt the worst, which is the blue collar guy in a, in a truck. And uh, so my staff, we at the time, we put a little piece of kale because my plate was brown. My food is brown. My sauce is brown. My beans are brown. The, the garlic bread is brown. And it's just, it looked like military food. So one of my early uh, mentors said, people eat with their food. If it doesn't look good, it doesn't taste good. And so we used to put a little piece of kale. That's before people ate kale uh, on the plate. And uh, my customer would laugh because they were Floridians and they would take the kale and chuck it. But I felt good about the way it looked when they set it down. But my staff came to me in 2008 and said, Dean, we're spending 80000 a year on kale. We'd like to not spend that. And I go, one of the things that Chuck Muir taught me is you can't take anything from the customer without giving something back. Because they have an expectation. A seven-ounce burger is a seven-ounce burger. You walk into a six-ounce burger, I don't care. Raise the price. I wanted a seven-ounce burger. So I challenged myself. I said, well, the two things we're doing there is we have to have some color on the table. And actually, if we could save a little bit of money, I wouldn't be objectionable. And if they could eat that thing that I'm spending 80000 instead of throwing it on the floor, I'd even be happier. So we started playing around, uh, and I came across a pickle. Uh, you may have heard this. Love Doctors were promoted called a wickle. And it was a, a spicy pickle out of Alabama. And I called the Wickle people and I said, hey, can you sell me spicy pickles? And they said, how much do you need? I go, I need a trailer load a month. And they go, we don't even make that many. So I had some friends that were in the industry that are a very large pickle manufacturer in Michigan. And then we met three or four times and I came up with a profile of what I wanted to do. Although the Wickle was a shelf steady, I wanted a no preservatives, fresh, no anything on them pickle. And we developed that pickle today and they produce it for me. I am a big believer in not trying to do everything yourself. The pickle companies source pickles, make pickles, pack pickles, make sure they're safe for the customers. So I'm proud to have the Gilo Pickle Company making a pickle by my recipe, shipping it to us, and my customers get to enjoy it. And they're the same, it has that same pace. It's always consistent, it's always good. Well, my favorite there is. Uh, I'll be sitting across from somebody, they'll stick one of those in their mouth, they go, oh, I hate it, it's too hot. But they'll eat five more while they're telling me it's too hot. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Dean, one of the and things... I, that, let me also yeah. say that I believe that early, it is qualified for that, my favorite restaurants all gave you some. Charles Crab used to give you a little pate. My favorite Italian restaurants give me bread. My favorite Mexican restaurants give me chips. And this is the hospitality industry. And I think if somebody lays something down as an offering... When you sit down, it's a great way to start a meal. So that became our ability to have something that we offered the customer. Thanks for choosing us. And your servers are never, they never hesitate to ask, when I finish the first round of pickles, would you like some more? Uh, which is great. So Well, that's, that's a little bit of design because the servers, when we did it, would load a, a guy up with eight ounces of pickles. And now that's really bad if he eats one and you throw away seven and a half ounces of pickles. But it's a win if he goes, I like these, can I have more? 
Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So we'll give you as many as you want. But if we give you too many, now you look at it as, eh, I'm tired of the pickles. So that, that it took a while, almost a year, to train the staff in to three to four chips per customer and bring them as many as they want. But don't throw away pickles. Yeah. Uh, Dean, if I can return to the topic of the, the work-life balance, you know, you, you mentioned that you would define success as having control of your time. And I would imagine one of the main things that you need to have is great talent and great managers that are running your different locations. So have those people been with you for a long time? I see a yeah, lot so of the same faces when I go into the Indian town store. And how do you find great talent to run your restaurants? So early, we grew a lot of our own talent. And we promoted our own talent upwards in the chain. I think that is the best way because they know the culture. The other good piece of this is, like I said, I started as a dishwasher. Lots of my talent either started in kitchens or in the dish rooms as well. So we understand the hierarchy of restaurants and we understand what dishwashers like and don't like. But the good result of that is I have an amazing tenure in all of my units, both from a management standpoint, frontline servers, line cooks, and that tenure that accomplishes the consistency by nature. And that's part of it too. When you walk into a restaurant, you have a favorite server, you are looking for her more than the manager. So our ability to understand employee needs to not, I think I've also worked in another big companies, especially put management through a bunch of middle management bullshit that doesn't serve anybody. uh, And it's just paper rustling. So we, we try to do more of a stream of consciousness, tell me about your day, what happened, where were your problems, what equipment failed. And it's really not a judging them. It's seeing day to day, well, the refrigerator is broken yesterday. I should see on the next day sheet, refrigerator repaired. And it's really watching their mental process of what they're looking for to improve in the unit they're in. Um, So having great employees is the only way we can be consistent. So are you going to the various stores uh, throughout the week, or are you staying in the office and only showing up in the uh, stores as uh, you feel like it's warranted or needed? So uh, a little bit of both. So 820-80 rule, 80-20 rule, I've got to be where critical ba- critical decisions are. So if we're building out a new unit, I'm going to spend a lot of time in that unit. If we're operating a new unit that's just six months old, I'm in that unit a lot. If we're in, we have a unit that's targeted under impressive results, I'm in that unit a lot. Otherwise, I prefer that my schedule be a little unpredictable than beneath me to make that more consistent. Uh, and again, do you do you have the do they teach you the whole PI thing? Yeah, absolutely. The pre- your PI talking about the predictive index. So we we unfortunately I was introduced uh, through Tech Vistage to predictive index and the idea that people have certain need drivers and not only do people have them, teams have them. So we're careful. My, I'm uh, a way off the chart persuasive manager with a way high B. My number two and number three report are scientific uh, types with no B and high D and no C and high A, right? And so that, that really is good for my company. And so that allows me to uh, operate as visionary and good cop. And then right behind me, I have two, go- two bad cops uh, that go around and make sure everything is done by the book every day. Uh, and so the stores see and interact with those guys more. And then I have an office staff, more diligence types, that really make sure the taxes get paid on time, the numbers get produced, uh, the interactions and the credits for the vendors get done. So it really takes a, 
takes a village, Hillary. <laughs> yeah. So, Dean, you mentioned predictive index, which uh, both of us have learned a lot about through our uh, affiliation in the past with Vistage. Tell us about your experience either going through Vistage or using different uh, coaching uh, programs and how that's shaped your uh, philosophy and what you, what benefits, if any, you've gotten from those types of programs. Well, yeah, first, so again, it came from failure, but prior to tech, prior to understanding what, what personalities could be and what types of people you would put on what seat on the bus, and even earlier than that, I had a, uh, maybe my first mentor was a, a very successful restaurateur out of New York. He was tyrannical. He was a screamer. He was emotionally unstable. And I morphed into that for my first three years of management. And it was wearing me out. And then somehow naturally I, I came into the, I can't do this if I can't be me. And I started to relax more into how I would manage to be me. But then when I got a chance, I tried to make my employees me. And that didn't work either. Um, and so you've, you find specific people that have specific values, you support them, you understand not their weaknesses, but their tendencies, and, and you you embrace that, and, and it can create very strong organizations. So I mistaked in both ways. I mistake trying to be just like somebody else, and then I made a mistake of trying to stamp out a bunch of Dean clones, and neither is appropriate for going forward in a great organization. Yeah. So, Dean, a couple more questions before we wrap up, if I can. Uh, is there a favorite book that you've read about business or a favorite individual that you would say, this is somebody that's been a uh, great uh, inspiration to me? So every one of my mentors deserves to be on that list. I can remember almost the first day States Hines walked into my restaurant and tortured us <laughs> with, with where we were failing and how we could be better. And then invited me to come into tech. Uh, and, and there's so much I learned there that, that it'd be hard for me to say that that wasn't uh, tech and the Vistas experience really wasn't on the top of the list because I didn't understand how similar all business was. I didn't say that we all had employee issues, compensation issues, competition issues, legal issues, brand, all of it, it, it exists. And I think successful business people see other successful business fields in any field in, in a brotherhood of, I get it, you survived, you must be special. So I think Vicious Tech, uh, simple from a book standpoint, I just gave this to an employee that was kind of going the wrong way, Warren Blanchard's uh, One Minute Manager. Uh, I think it, it was given to me in the 70s, and it's such an easy coaching style to embrace of teach through the positives, not just, and, and you can't ignore the negatives. So I, I think One Minute Manager and then later Vistage, so, Dean, is there a favorite author that uh, you would recommend uh, that uh, our listeners pay attention to? Well, certainly Malcolm Gladwell. I think he has a ability to teach you simple lessons that have complex results and, and also has the ability, like Tipping Point, to make modest, successful gains seem to pretend uh, and give you the optimism that this is going to work. So I think there's a lot of beauty and a lot of hope in all Gladwell's work. Very much like the story you told of the food critic uh, writing about your store. That seemed like it was a tipping point for uh, PA Barbecue quite a few years ago. So Dean, so our listeners can just get an idea of who you are outside of the restaurants and outside of work. Uh, when you're not working, 
Uh, what are some of your passions? I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at you on a video right now. So behind me, I can see a fish. I can see a football. I can see uh, yeah, uh, some, I can you. see some chess pieces, and I can see a really cool license plate. So uh, tell hey, us Dad, what you like. Tell us what you, you see, like to do when you're not. Can you uh, see the glass window? I do see the glass window. So my biggest passion right now is creating a path towards sustainability for the restaurant business. We. Uh, Sustainability started in my company in 2008 in response to what are the market pressures. And clearly one of the market pressures is a customer coming forward is going to want you to be socially responsible, environmentally responsible, uh, organic fruits and vegetables. And so the dream is, uh, my license plate is ask why not. Could we accomplish that in middle dining? And after uh, taking some meetings with Palm Beach County Management and Jeff Coons and Waste Management, we learned that this is still America. And as long as it's my trash and I had an ag property, I could do whatever I wanted with my waste. So what, one of the things we realized early is that individual restaurants and, and passion and, and evident passion, it beats uh, marketing. And so North Palm being a new uh, store that needed some color, we started taking our beer and wine bottles and we created stained glass windows with them. I take some other beer bottles and I make pickle dishes because that's the first thing the customer sees is these free pickles, but we're make, we're giving it to them in a dish that we purposely upcycle. We're also growing heirloom pineapples at the farm so that a couple months a year, you can have unbelievable pina coladas and pineapple upside down cake that you can't get anywhere in the world because I'm the only one growing these pineapples. And so I think we're limping towards a sustainability model that'll allow me to be even more unique and dynamic as a restaurant chain. And then here's the beauty, while reducing our expense, nothing's really green unless it's a better idea and it costs less. If it's a better idea and costs more, that's called a tax. Um, and so if we keep taxing our customers, my price of cheeseburgers go up. And so I'm really, really passionate and excited about the millions of earthworms I have about the pineapples I have growing, about the ability to recover glass waste and that my waste stream has value. And if I can see it as that, then I have a competitive advantage. Dean, fantastic. Uh, I, I love your story. It's uh, our listeners, uh, it's gonna re result very well, uh, sound very well to uh, the folks that are listening and to all the aspiring entrepreneurs out there. This is just a uh, fabulous story. And it teaches us that we can become all become overnight successes. It just takes a few decades of really hard work and some really, really good ideas and the ability to take some risk in what you're doing. So this has been our visit on Business in Paradise with the founder of PA Barbecue, Dean LaValle. Dean, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. And we wish you, your restaurants, your family, the very best. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Business in Paradise Palm Beach podcast with Carrie Stamp, founder of Carrie Stamp and Company, Principal Wealth Advisors. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Commonwealth Financial Network. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. 
Carrie Stamp and Company is located at 110 Bridge Road to Cuesta, Florida, 33469. Securities and advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network member FINRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Thank you.